Hello, lover of things that go bump in the night. This is Dan Cummins. And I'm Lindsay Cummins. And we co-host the paranormal horror podcast, Scared to Death. Are shadow people real? What about demonic possessions? Poltergeist activity? Do you believe in ghosts? Malevolent entities? Are aliens real? Could you be abducted? We don't know. But what we do know is that we have over 230 episodes of stories on our podcast, Scared to Death, exploring all of the possibilities. Each week, we share several supposedly true stories that have been gathered from around the world and submissions from our own fans of allegedly true tales. Curious about the paranormal? Just like a spooky story? Do you need more fear to fuel you through your long work days? Come join us. New episodes of Scared to Death are released every Tuesday night. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you end up scared to death. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, abuse, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On June 3, 1968, 32-year-old Valerie Solanus stood outside the doors of 33 Union Square West, better known at that time as the headquarters of Andy Warhol's infamous factory studio. She had no real plan except that she would use the 32 caliber Beretta revolver and the 22 caliber Colt she had tucked away. Valerie, who'd always been a tomboy, dressed specially for the occasion. She wore lipstick and styled her hair. On the surface, she looked calmer and more put together than normal. But inside, she was consumed with paranoia and rage. She'd become convinced that Warhol planned to steal her ideas and pawn them off as his own. As she paced outside the building, she funneled that anger into action as she turned the safety off the Beretta and rang the buzzer. Warhol, who was accustomed to unscheduled visits from Valerie, invited her upstairs, where Mario Amaya, a magazine editor from London, was waiting for an important meeting. Once they reached the lobby of the factory, before anyone knew what was happening, Valerie pulled out her gun, aimed it directly at Warhol, and fired. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. 
Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second episode on Valerie Solanus, a radical feminist and writer. Last week, we discussed how Valerie overcame an unstable and abusive childhood. As an adult, she honed her writing skills as an essayist and playwright, attacking the many inequalities that women faced in the 1960s. This week, we'll cover Valerie's Scum Manifesto and how she tried to start an underground feminist movement using Andy Warhol to publicize her vision for a new world. We'll also cover the events leading up to the shooting and how her work influenced second-wave feminism. In July of 1966, 30-year-old Valerie Solanas copyrighted a finished version of her play, Up Your Ass. The play was a radical and crass drama that highlighted the gender inequality in 1960s New York. In short, it made readers uncomfortable. But Valerie doggedly cold-called local independent producers, trying to get it in the hands of people who could put her words on stage and make her dreams a reality. Valerie lived off and on at the Chelsea Hotel, surrounded by artists, writers, musicians, and a flourishing LGBTQ community. She found a place among kindred spirits, but she still faced difficulty. The owner of the Chelsea was lenient about late rental payments, but Valerie was so consistently late, she was close to wearing out her welcome. Perennially broke, she relied on sex work and panhandling for her meager income. Valerie's inability to hold a full-time job may have been partially linked to her then-undiagnosed schizophrenia. Before we continue with Valerie's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Symptoms of schizophrenia include difficulty focusing, poor memory and decision-making skills, and overwhelming emotional distress. Valerie already exhibited signs of paranoia, including her belief that a group of powerful men maintained control over everything in American society. But by 1967, 31-year-old Valerie had also developed a habit of exposing herself in public, sometimes undoing her genes and touching herself. Studies have shown that childhood family dysfunction and sexual abuse are risk factors in developing exhibitionism. Although she sometimes struggled to behave appropriately in public, Valerie continued to write in private. 
On May 19, 1967, shortly after her 31st birthday, Valerie filed a copyright for a new piece titled The Scum Manifesto, or the Society for Cutting Up Men Manifesto. In Valerie's eyes, the piece was her Mona Lisa. It distilled a lifetime's worth of hardship and rejection into one concrete idea. The problem with the world was men, and the only way to solve this problem, and by extension, all the problems of modern society, was to eliminate them all. The opening statement read, Life in this society being at best an utter bore and no aspect of society being at all relevant to women, there remains to civic-minded, responsible, thrill-seeking females only to overthrow the government, eliminate the money system, institute complete automation, and destroy the male sex. Men weren't the only ones to come under fire in Valerie's manifesto. She also called out the women who attempted to fit in with the patriarchy. Valerie specifically took issue with so-called daddy's girls, possibly because of her strained relationship with her abusive father. She wrote, The effect of fatherhood on females is to make them male-dependent, passive, domestic, animalistic, nice, insecure, approval and security seekers, cowardly, humble, respectful of authorities and men, closed, not fully responsive, half-dead, trivial, dull, conventional, flattened out and thoroughly contemptible. The women she wanted to reach were the ones dissatisfied with the state of the world. She called them scum, or, as she described them, dominant, secure, self-confident, nasty, violent, selfish, independent, proud, thrill-seeking, freewheeling, arrogant females who consider themselves fit to rule the universe. In May of 1967, Valerie set out to find these kindred spirits by holding scum meetings in New York. To spread the word, she took out ads in the Village Voice, proclaiming Scum's purpose. The Voice published the ads mostly because the editors viewed them as humorous and satirical. The meetings, held at the Chelsea Hotel, brought together odd groups of people. There were some angry women, like Valerie, as well as queer youth, curious onlookers, and, most surprisingly, men who agreed with Valerie. But Valerie had actually anticipated this. She wrote specifically about male allies, calling them the men's auxiliary. In a flyer for one of her meetings, she wrote, Scum has a men's auxiliary to accommodate those men who wish to perform a public service and hasten their inevitable demise. These meetings weren't the only way Valerie tried to get her ideas out. She also focused on getting her play, Up Your Ass, produced. Actor Jeremiah Newton was 17 years old when he answered an ad that Valerie put in the Village Voice and came to the Chelsea Hotel to audition. During his tryout, Valerie gave Jeremiah one page at a time to read from. At the time, printing was expensive, especially for a broke writer like Valerie. 
Jeremiah noted that these sides were likely her only copy of the play. When they sat down to talk politics, Jeremiah found her extremely intelligent, with well-formed opinions about current events, gender theory, and the world at large. When asked about the budding conflict in Vietnam, Valerie answered, Well, if women ran the country, then there would be no war, because no woman would send her child off to war. Valerie's fast friendship with Jeremiah led her to his roommate, who was a drag queen in filmmaker and visual artist Andy Warhol's social circle. Soon, Valerie found herself in the orbit of one of the most famous creative visionaries of the 60s. She got to know people from the factory. At the time, the factory was famous throughout New York as a space for artists, drug users, celebrities, and the wealthy elite to congregate. It was a makeshift film studio, a space to create art, and the home base for Warhol's parties. The fateful meeting between Valerie and Warhol took place in the summer of 1967, when one of Jeremiah's friends introduced them. It didn't go well. Valerie gave Warhol a copy of her play with the hope that he would produce it. But Warhol thought it was so vulgar that Valerie must be a cop, trying to set him up for a sting. Valerie responded by unzipping her pants and exposing herself to Warhol, saying, Sure, I'm a cop, and here's my badge. It was a rocky start to the friendship. In an interview with Cahiers du Cinéma in May of 1967, Warhol said, A girl called up here and offered me a film script called Up Your Ass, and I thought the title was so wonderful and I'm so friendly that I invited her to come up with it, but it was so dirty. Despite his initial impression, Warhol saw something great in Valerie. He held on to her play, and the unlikely pair formed a rapport. In the summer of 1967, the pair were sometimes spotted eating dinner at Max's Kansas City, a restaurant for the rich and famous. They talked about her play, the Scum Manifesto, and her ideas about the world in general. Warhol was generally receptive to her point of view, so Valerie thought he shared her beliefs. She even tried to recruit Warhol to the men's auxiliary. In the summer of 1967, Valerie gave Warhol a scum recruiting poster to hang in the factory bathroom and asked him to film their forums and rallies. Valerie reportedly told him, Scum's about to get into high gear. Shortly after the manifesto hits the streets, lots of activities will follow quickly after. The world will be carotted with scum. But as Valerie demanded more and more from Warhol, their relationship quickly soured. And it wasn't long before he realized just how dangerous being on Valerie's bad side could be. Coming up next, Valerie's paranoia grows more severe. Now back to the story. In 1967, 31-year-old aspiring writer Valerie Solanus met famous artist Andy Warhol. They quickly bonded over her acerbic written pieces, particularly the radical feminist Scum Manifesto 
and her stage play, Up Your Ass. Valerie began spending more and more time with Warhol, and it wasn't long before she convinced herself that he was going to produce her play. Warhol never said anything to suggest that he would, but Valerie told her family and friends that things were looking up and that her show would soon be in production. She presented Warhol with a newly edited version of the script in June of 1967, with handwritten notes and corrections in the margins. But when Warhol's alleged promises never came to fruition, Valerie's paranoia took hold. Over the second half of 1967, she started to believe that Warhol was deliberately stalling the production of her play so he could steal her work and pass it off as his own. This was in part because of her realization that, as a woman, she would never be as important to the factory as the men Warhol surrounded himself with. Valerie also noticed that Warhol had a tendency to plagiarize her words. Things that she said during their group dinners at Max's Kansas City would end up in his movies, verbatim. When she realized what he was doing, she demanded that he stop. But Warhol didn't listen to her. It only fueled her mistrust and paranoia. She started hounding Warhol for her copy of the playback. Finally, he admitted... He'd lost it. This revelation only heightened Valerie's neuroses. She didn't believe that Warhol had misplaced the play. Rather, this served as further proof that Warhol was trying to steal her work and cover his tracks. This unshakable belief in certain delusions, despite all the evidence to the contrary, is common in patients with schizophrenia. Paranoia, one of the major symptoms, is described by patients as an unshakable, persistent feeling that the world is out to get them. People suffering from this condition can be overly suspicious, find it difficult to trust others, consider the world to be a constant threat, and believe in unfounded conspiracy theories. Fearful that she was somehow being taken advantage of, Valerie shamelessly harassed Warhol for money as recompense for the work he lost. But Warhol, who was growing tired of Valerie's aggressive tactics, refused to give her a handout. Instead, he offered her a small, paid role in his latest film, I, a Man, at a rate of $25. In today's money, this comes out to roughly $190. The film, loosely based on a Swedish sexploitation film called I, a Woman, followed one man and his attempts to hit on six different women throughout New York City. Valerie appeared as a butch lesbian who turned the man down. She was proud of her appearance, and she brought her younger sister Judith to see the film in New York on August 24, 1967. It was unusual for Valerie to let a slight go. In the past, she was known for always having the last word. But it's possible that she was too focused on other potential opportunities to hold more of a grudge against Warhol for losing the play. Around the same time that she met Andy Warhol, Valerie came across an ad from a French publisher, Maurice Giraudia, 
seeking new writers. Maurice had inherited a small publishing company, the Obelisk Press, and continued in his father's footsteps with the goal of publishing literature that no other companies would put on bookshelves. He'd been forced to flee the United States after repeatedly being arrested in Paris for disseminating pornography. In 1967, he was determined to find new success in the Big Apple. He ran an ad in all of his U.S. published paperbacks stating, We are not interested in anyone famous or half-famous. Our function is to discover talent. Unknown writers are our specialty. You have been rejected by all existing publishers. Well and good, you have a chance with us. Valerie jumped at the chance to work with Maurice and sent a copy of her play to him. Maurice responded to the material immediately. It was exactly what he was looking for, and he hired her to write a novel for him. On August 29, 1967, 31-year-old Valerie signed a contract with Maurice, wherein he promised her a $500 advance. It also gave him the first rights of refusal for her next two pieces of writing. The money would have been a windfall for the perpetually broke Valerie, but she soon came to mistrust Maurice's intention. His contract with Valerie was loosely worded, and before long, she believed that this was intentional on Maurice's part, and that his right to refusal for her next two pieces meant he could claim ownership of both Valerie's play and the Scum Manifesto. Like with Warhol, Valerie's beliefs weren't entirely unfounded. Maurice had previously been known for crooked business practices. In addition to being involved in pornography in France, he cut legal corners whenever possible. But there was no evidence to suggest that he had any malicious intentions regarding Valerie. As she grew more distrustful, she turned to Warhol for legal advice. He recommended lawyers, who assured her that Maurice didn't own anything she'd written before they met, but Valerie's paranoia couldn't be reasoned with. Furthermore, as her mental health continued to decline, she began conflating Maurice and Warhol in her mind. She believed that both of them were colluding against her in an attempt to steal her work. By October 1967, Valerie was ranting to anyone who would listen about the numerous ways Warhol and Maurice had wronged her. She believed that they'd broken promises and owed her money. Valerie's deteriorating state prevented her from writing the novel she'd sold to Maurice. Because of this, she never received payment from him. The Chelsea Hotel, fed up with her missed rent payments, kicked her out. In the fall of 1967, she was living on the streets, having alienated every friend who might have taken pity on her. And Valerie continued to hound both Maurice and Warhol for the perceived theft of her intellectual property, calling them toads in her letters and calls, and swearing revenge on the both of them. 
She also wrote long, nonsensical, alarming letters to her mother and her sister about Maurice, Warhol, and the other people who were supposedly out to get her. Her sharp cognitive decline might have been accelerated by her living situation. The Canadian Observatory on Homelessness observed that homelessness amplifies poor mental health. The stress may exacerbate previous mental illness and encourage anxiety, fear, depression, sleeplessness, and substance use. Whatever the reason, after three months on the streets, 31-year-old Valerie's paranoia had overtaken her completely. She was worried about her play, growing more and more concerned that someone was going to produce it without her. She was so apprehensive that she brokered a deal with Maurice Girodia in January of 1968, granting him the rights to Scum Manifesto and allowing him to publish it instead of the novel she never wrote. In exchange, she hoped for some assurance that he wouldn't touch her play. But she was rapidly losing her grasp on reality, and even this didn't grant her the peace of mind she hoped for. Maurice upheld his end of the bargain and paid Valerie, even though he didn't publish the manifesto at that time. She sorely needed the money, but instead of finding a new place to live or buying herself the essentials that she'd been lacking, Valerie went to visit her sister Judith in California. She arrived on Judith's doorstep in San Mateo in January of 1968, wearing dirty clothes and ranting about the injustices that had been done to her. Valerie was in the worst shape Judith had ever seen her. All she had was the clothing on her back, a rat's nest of waist-length hair, and several homemade copies of the Scum Manifesto. Judith was alarmed to find her in this condition. Valerie had always been eccentric, but in the years since she'd moved to New York, she'd become something else, unhinged and dangerous. Valerie stayed with her sister for several weeks before fleeing to stay with old friends in Berkeley and San Francisco. Her paranoia grew worse as she moved around from place to place. At one point, she became convinced that her dental filling had been bugged. 32-year-old Valerie Solanus returned to New York in the spring of 1968 and picked up right where she'd left off. She sought out anyone who might have an interest in publishing her work. She was desperate for someone to validate her writing and give her a chance. Adults suffering from paranoid schizophrenia often report a lack of motivation but this was one problem Valerie never had. Despite her deteriorating mental health, she pitched a lesbian column to Cavalier magazine, the one-time publisher of her essay, A Young Girl's Primer. It was summarily rejected. She also approached The Realist about publishing the Scum Manifesto. Maurice still owned the rights, but he'd never fulfilled his agreement to publish the book, which led Valerie to conclude she could sell it elsewhere. The realist editor took pity on her and gave her $50. But it wasn't nearly enough to give Valerie the stability she clearly needed. 
This series of rejections was likely due to Valerie's unhinged behavior, but to her they were just more proof of her master conspiracy theory, one in which Maurice and Warhol were puppeteering the people in her life with the intention of controlling her work. By early June, after months of rejection, solitude, and a rapidly unraveling grasp on reality, 32-year-old Valerie snapped. On June 3, 1968, she went to a friend of a friend to grab a laundry bag of belongings she'd left behind some weeks ago. But instead of dirty clothes, Valerie pulled her address book, a Kotex pad, and two guns out of the bag. Her next stop was the actor's studio to find famous performer and producer Lee Strasberg. She hoped that Strasberg would agree to put on her play. Perhaps she thought that waving her gun would help persuade him if he tried to reject her yet again. But Strasberg wasn't at his studio, so Valerie quickly moved on to Margot Fiden, a playwright and producer who'd put Peter Pan on Broadway at the young age of 16. Valerie believed that Margot, as a woman, would be sympathetic to her cause. Margot was just coming back from a doctor's appointment with her 18-month-old daughter when Valerie showed up unexpectedly. But Margot let her inside and agreed to listen to her pitch. According to Brianne Faw's biography, Valerie spent four hours at Margot's apartment. At first, she talked only about her play, but the conversation quickly devolved into a pitch for why a scum takeover and eliminating the men of the world was so necessary. Margot later said, she had instant answers for everything. She was able to debate masterfully. Clearly, she was brilliant, very smart, with intelligent, sad eyes. She took in everything. Still, what I saw before me was a tragically damaged person. After four hours, Valerie demanded that Margot commit to producing the play. But even though she was sympathetic to Valerie's cause, Margot refused. That's when Valerie pulled out her gun. She explained to Margot, Yes, you will produce the play because I'll shoot Andy Warhol and that will make me famous and the play famous and then you'll produce it. Margot begged Valerie not to resort to violence, insisting that it wouldn't make any difference. But Valerie had made up her mind a long time ago. She left the apartment around 1 p.m. and headed straight for the factory. As soon as she left, Margot called every precinct she could, explaining what she'd just witnessed and begging them to arrest Valerie before she could do any harm. But the cops dismissed Margot out of hand. In a display of the very sexism that Valerie was trying to eradicate, the police officers reportedly told Margot, Listen, lady, how would you know what a real gun looked like? You're wasting police time. Their indifference freed Valerie to make her way to her victim. Nothing could break her resolve to commit murder.
Coming up next, Valerie shoots Andy Warhol. Now, back to the story. By June of 1968, 32-year-old Valerie Solanus's lifelong mental illness was spiraling wildly out of control. A failed collaboration with Andy Warhol and an ill-advised book deal with publisher Maurice Giraudiat only worsened her chronic paranoia. Finally, she resolved to take matters into her own hands and murder Warhol. On June 3rd, Valerie got to the factory sometime before 2.30 p.m. The employees knew that Warhol was tired of Valerie's ranting and raving. In an attempt to get rid of her, they told Valerie that Warhol wasn't coming in. But she persisted. She stood waiting outside the door, clutching her 32 caliber revolver in a paper bag. After two hours, Warhol finally showed up. He invited her inside to the factory. There, Warhol's executive producer, Paul Morrissey, and assistant Fred Hughes were waiting for him. In addition, Mario Amaya, a magazine editor from London, was there for an interview. Although Valerie accompanied Warhol inside, he mostly ignored her. He had phone calls to return and the delayed meeting with Amaya. But a distracted Warhol was perfect for Valerie's plans. She pulled out her gun, aimed it at Warhol's back while he was on the phone, and fired before anyone could stop her. When the first shot went off, no one in the studio realized what was happening. Amaya thought a sniper had fired through the window. He threw himself on the ground. Hughes, on the other hand, thought the sound was an explosion from the offices of the Communist Party, located two floors above them. Warhol was the only one who realized what was happening. Though her first shot had missed him, he turned at the sound, and when he saw Valerie was holding a smoking gun, he yelled, Valerie, don't do it, no, no. But his words couldn't deter her. Valerie wasn't a skilled marksman. Her second shot also missed. However, the third bullet struck Warhol in the abdomen, hitting his left lung, spleen, stomach, liver, and esophagus before exiting his back. He collapsed to the ground, at which point Valerie turned to Amaya. He was the only bystander who hadn't taken cover, making him a perfect target for Valerie. She fired twice more. One shot hit, but miraculously passed through Amaya without damaging any organs. Valerie then approached Hughes, pointing the gun directly at him. He begged for his life, but Valerie told him simply, I have to shoot you. She aimed the gun at his chest. At such a close range, it was impossible for her to miss. But fate intervened. The gun jammed, and as she tried to get it working again, the elevator doors opened. Hughes, realizing that Valerie was distracted and agitated, told her to just take the elevator and leave. Valerie did exactly that. Morrissey and Hughes immediately called 911. 
When the paramedics arrived and saw the blood, they believed that Warhol was already dead. No one could have survived the injuries he'd sustained. Amaya had to convince them that Warhol was still breathing and that he needed immediate medical treatment. Finally, the first responders loaded Warhol into their ambulance. At the hospital, his heart stopped at 4.51 p.m. The doctors declared him legally dead, but they were able to resuscitate him by massaging his heart and rushed him into emergency surgery. While doctors scrambled to save his life, Valerie delighted in the knowledge that she'd finally followed through on her plan. She'd shot, and probably killed, Andy Warhol. That evening, she approached a traffic cop, Officer Shemalix, and turned herself in. She handed him both her guns, explaining, The police are looking for me. They want me. He had too much control over my life. The arrest caused a media storm, and when the cops took Valerie in for booking, photographers arrived in droves. She allegedly smiled and posed for the cameras. Despite her delusional motivations, Valerie was correct that her actions would make her famous. And she milked the spotlight for all it was worth. When reporters asked Valerie why she shot Warhol, she answered, I have a lot of very involved reasons. Read my manifesto and it will tell you what I am. She was more forthcoming when she was questioned by the police, confessing to everything. On June 5th, two days after the shooting, she was transferred to Elmhurst Hospital in Queens. The psychiatrists who evaluated her finally diagnosed her with paranoid schizophrenia, a now-defunct category of the diagnosis of schizophrenia. Valerie was now on the path to healing, as was her victim, Warhol. He narrowly survived his encounter, but he was heavily scarred after the incident, both physically and emotionally. It took him two months to recover enough to leave the hospital, even when he did, he was forced to wear a surgical corset to keep his organs in place for the rest of his life, and he developed a lifelong fear of hospitals. Valerie's other supposed enemy, Maurice Giraudiat, returned to Paris. He finally published Valerie's scum manifesto, taking advantage of the press to sell copies. While Valerie was proud of shooting Warhol, her sister Judith had a different take on the incident. She said, Valerie did not want to kill Andy Warhol, the individual, but Warhol, the man, the one with the power, the control, the fame, the money, the prestige. Everything came together in one horrendous moment when paranoid delusion fused with intolerable reality. But not everyone was so quick to condemn the shooting. Valerie's actions got the attention of radical feminists who recognized her anger in themselves. They saw the shooting as brave instead of criminal. One attorney, Florence Kennedy, agreed to represent her pro bono. She called Valerie one of the most important spokeswomen of the feminist movement. 
And Rosalind Baxendahl, who organized a group protest outside the court, said, Some people said she was crazy, but I thought she was very sane. People who didn't conform were always being labeled as crazy then. But after amassing an army of women, just as she hoped to do in her scum meetings, Valerie alienated each of them one by one in her personal life. She accused them of using her trial to gain fame for themselves and railed against everyone who supported her. Even with a diagnosis, Valerie's paranoia continued to take over her life and warp her sense of reality. It also prevented her from mounting any kind of useful defense. She was found guilty and sentenced to three years in prison on June 9, 1969, almost a full year after the shooting. In 1971, when Valerie was 35, she was released. Once freed, she drifted through New York, begging, speaking in gibberish, and still obsessing over the many ways in which she'd been wronged. She participated in activist circles and wrote for a few years, but ultimately faded into anonymity. This deterioration may have been because Valerie went off her medication, though it's unclear if she took any regularly outside of being institutionalized. Studies have shown that routine and constant support are necessary to ensure that mental health patients continue their treatment. Valerie had neither after her release, and over the years, she grew worse and worse. She eventually headed west again, spending a few years in Phoenix before ending up in San Francisco. She died of pneumonia at the Bristol Hotel on April 25, 1988, at age 52. The landlord came to her door to track down a missing rent payment and discovered her decomposing body. While she never saw the violent overthrow of the patriarchy, before her death, Valerie achieved many of her goals. Even today, her writing continues to be dissected, used, and praised in feminist movements. And her ideas have had a massive influence on the continued fight for women's rights. But her victories came at a high cost, not only for her victim, Andy Warhol, but for herself as well. She ultimately lost her freedom, her chance at a stable life, and her grip on reality. While she blamed the patriarchy for many of her problems, today she serves as a reminder of the importance of mental health treatment and awareness. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Female Criminals in the search bar. 
And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Liz Dora Vietzen, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 